This podcast is presented by the Ed Narrative, a place for reflective discourse on education. Visit theednarrative.com to subscribe to this podcast or our blog. You can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. And as always, please leave a review to help us grow this community of educators. Welcome to episode 13 of the Ed Narrative Podcast. My name is Darren Ralston and I am the producer. This time we'll be talking with Elena Aguilar, the author of The Art of Coaching, The Art of Coaching Teams, and then most recently, Onward, which was published in May. Uh, I'll also have Maureen Jensen and John Hobson in with me uh, for the conversation. If you remember, they were in episode 1 and episode 5 where we had discussed Elena's earlier works. Um, Now, as far as Onward goes, this book is intended to cover the school year, um, and it begins in June as far as the process. So I thought, what better time than June to try and uh, release this episode when readers are diving in. Um, We'll take a look also at Elena's Art of Coaching books, and, uh, you know, (laughs) we had fun doing this one. We just, we really did. Uh, Let's get started. Elena. Hey, can Hi. you hear us? I can. Yes. Well, it's great to talk to you. I've, I was uh, I was really happy to uh, to have the opportunity to do this, and uh, I've also got uh, John Hobson and and uh, Maureen Jensen with me. I don't know if you had a chance to catch the uh, the early uh, episodes that I'd done uh, where we'd uh, discussed your work, but uh, but they had uh, had joined me for those. It's great. I'm so glad they can be here too. Yeah. Say hi. <laughs> <laughs> hi, Lena. Hi. Are you guys actually all physically in the same place? We yes, we are. Yeah. In the same yeah. Place. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that nice. feels like such an anomaly these days. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. It's 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 a little tight in this room, but but we're making it work. <laughs> good. Good. So, great. Well, I'm glad this worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, why don't we just go ahead and get started? I like the, I like the tone we have right now. Just kind of chit chat. That's that's fine with me if it's fine with you. Yeah, that sounds great. I love the informal. Let's see where this goes and yeah. let the conversation take us into some interesting places. Exactly. That sounds good. That's what coaching's about, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it is. <laughs> so um, I'd caught the uh, Jim Knight chat that you guys did a couple. What was like? I guess it was a week ago. Um, yeah. And uh, I was wondering if um, if you're doing a lot more of that sort of uh, that teaming between other folks in the coaching world. I've been corresponding with Jim for a while, and okay. I'm going to be presenting at his conference. And he yeah, you guys got, have mentioned that. Yeah, and he had um, I think he had an advanced copy of Onward, or I was talking with him about it, and he was so excited about it. And suggested that we have a follow-up conversation. We were actually talking about coaching. And then he said, let's have a follow-up conversation about that. So I really love the kind of informal conversation that he and I had where we talked about coffee and dogs and coaching strategies <laughs> and seeing Yeah, I think his dogs you know, made his appearance in there too. They did. Yes, they did. <laughs> um, but it, that feels like real life to me. And yeah. I think that's when the most interesting conversations can have. So I would say that's what I have been perhaps doing more of or uh, appreciating. I'm actually having 
Zaretta Hammond over today. She and I have been friends and colleagues for a long time. When I talked to her, she said the same thing. So that's great. Tell her I said hi. I will. And she's just coming over today to hang out and have some tea and talk about things. And so those conversations are um, really nourishing for me and just spark new ideas. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, uh, you uh, you said you're doing a session with her, or did I, somebody told me you're doing a session with her later on? I think this year is that correct? Where you guys so are we working actually together? Did she uh, she presented and keynoted at the annual conference that I hold that um, happened in February, and she okay, was there. Okay. And that was she was a big hit. She's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, she yeah. came out here, and it was the same thing here. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she's great. Oh, I know. Yeah, I had a, I had a good time sitting down to talk with her. She was she was definitely fascinating. So, mm-hmm. um, so I wanted to go ahead and uh, and hand over uh, some of the conversation to Maureen because she wanted to kind of take a look a little bit at art of coaching, and then we'll go over to John who will talk some with you on coaching teams, and then we'll get into onward, which will be kind of more all of us really looking closer at, at the work you've done there. So I'll hand that sounds it over. great. Yeah. So would you like to start with something light or something heavy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, choice. Um, whatever you want. Whatever well, I was you looking at some of these it. questions and I thought, whoa, that's a, that's, a, that's a big one to start off with. But um, Oh, I'm so excited. I can't uh, wait to hear them. Well, it's not. I mean, I don't think they're that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, but, <laughs> Uh-oh. In our, coaching, in our coaching model, uh, obviously, your um, your work has been uh, foundational um, to the work that we do and the PD plans that the lead coaches create for um, professional learning experiences for our coaches. And I think that from the art of coaching, um, we coaches have really started to think more about uh, the idea of coaching for equity. And um, I was I was quoting on page 127 in The Art of Coaching, you say that a transformational coach is intentional about interrupting patterns of inequity and supporting students um, whom our system has failed. And I was just, you know, we've been talking a lot about like, what is that? What do you think that looks like in an interaction? What would it sound like or feel like in a partnership where the coach is cognizant of, of language, but then also trying to honor what the teacher is going after, but also mm-hmm. coaching for equity at the same time? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that question. Um, <laughs> you, you're asking me the question that I'm going to answer in my next book. And so <laughs> my Great. brain, my mind is all over that question these days. Um, what does it look and sound like to coach or lead for equity while also honoring the complexity of the human being in front of you, the relationship that you have with them while working to cultivate their emotional resilience, and while also um, being aware of the experience of students and interrupting the status quo or the reflection of systemic oppression, how do we do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I can give you an example. As a, te- as a coach of teachers, I frequently heard and still hear 
the phrase, these kids, coupled with a deficit reference. Like, well, you know, this curriculum is really great, but I don't think these kids are going to be able to do it. I mean, they just don't have, right? So something like that, that um, in my mind is an indicator of unconscious bias, uh, which is a reflection of systemic oppression, which is a, it's a, it's a, um, which results in lowering expectations. And I just gave you a pretty softened example of the usage of these kids, because I've used, I've heard it used plenty of times in a much nastier way. Um, And so along that whole continuum, when we're coaching for equity, many of us, many coaches hear that and they don't know what to say, or they think, Ooh, I don't want to open that can of worms or they know what this person is saying. They know what, you know, their teacher, their colleagues are saying, but they don't say anything. And I think we can start with just saying, Hey, could I ask perhaps a a clarifying question? When you say these kids, what exactly do you mean? Can we talk about your understanding or your perception of these kids? There's so many different ways that we can respond that basically open up the conversation. Because I think what happens more often than not is we hear, we see things that reflect unconscious or even conscious bias. We see microaggressions, the little messaging to kids that you do not belong, you are not as good as, um, and we just, we, we kind of let them go because we don't know what to say. And we're afraid that we're going to jeopardize the relationship or we're afraid that people, we won't know what to say. We're afraid that we'll get so emotional. Um, and what we need to start doing is just treading into this uncomfortable water and seeing what happens and stopping so afraid of saying something. Because those of us who are in a coaching position or a leadership position, we have a tremendous amount of power and privilege already. And we also may have built strong relationships with teachers or with the people who are expressing these ideas. And we probably could get a lot farther than we think we can. Yeah, we can open up that conversation without blame or judgment. And we can we can just start getting somewhere. Yeah, I think the blame and judgment piece is probably the most important because then you can still have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we also go into the conversation under the assumption of the press pre- presumption that if we think about racism like the way Beverly Tatum describes it as smog in the air that we have all been breathing since we were born. We all have unconscious bias and we're all responsible for surfacing it and becoming aware of it and the impact that it has on others. It can help us go into the conversation with less judgment and more as a humble partner in this learning journey. And I think that it is, as you say, and onward, the more resilient you are, the, the, there's a, a better ability to have those difficult conversations. So it kind of goes goes hand in hand to recognizing mm-hmm. your own emotions and building your own resiliency in order to to uh, dive into those conversations with others. And I think I do think teachers think um, are it's it are coaches I, I should say are are fearful of um, damaging relationships that they've had for years that I don't think, I I think sometimes they're not trusting it enough that it's, it'll withstand, um, 
that question. Uh, what do you mean when you say, you know, those kids? And I, I think it's a, uh, they've, they've got to go for it, you know, and, and, right. and try mm-hmm. it and try it out and, and reflect on how it, how that first conversation went and how to uh, make the next conversation um, better based on their experiences with, with taking that first step. Right. And the other thing that coaches need that we all need is our own PD and our own opportunity to practice because particularly for these kinds of conversations, we need colleagues with whom we can process and talk and say, you know, I am just becoming aware of my unconscious bias and I'm kind of overwhelmed. You know, how are you dealing with this? I mean, we've got to be able to have these conversations with colleagues before we're sort of out there on the field performing you know it's like the conversation with a client or a teacher in a school is the performance that's the game if we were professional athletes and professional athletes don't just walk out onto the field and play a game they practice for you know dozens of hours and then they have an hour and a half game have you we don't and we we don't get that opportunity as coaches right Mm -hmm. have you well I mean have you been involved in professional development that you thought was um particularly influential uh on the development of having those conversations or if- um so i do workshops in okay. coaching for equity and those workshops are um built on a foundation of coaching and so they if anybody wants to attend one of those they'll see for example that there's a prerequisite that they've attended my foundational my essentials workshop and i'm naming that because while some people are really eager to jump into those conversations, and I love that, I'm thrilled, there is a foundation that a coach needs in terms of the basic skills around how we listen, interpret, and analyze what we hear and their coaching responses. Um, there's, there's a really, there's a strong foundation from which we can be so much more effective. Um, I've done some writing on on having those kinds of conversations. And I think, you know, much of my approach is integrated into the three books that I've written um, as opposed to pulled out separately, which is sort of where it's headed in the next book. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I can definitely see a lot of overlap uh, from the previous two works in onward. I can say, Oh, that, and you even draw those, those lines say, Oh, this was also in coaching for teams. And uh, you know, this was in art of coaching, you know, so you have the references in there. So, um, so I think uh, what we're going to do is we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll uh, switch over to John, let him talk a little bit with you on coaching of teams. Yeah, so I mean, I think one of those connecting threads is this sort of obvious one, which is this uh, thread of resilience. I mean, even in the subtitle of both of those books. And so I was wondering um, about both approaches. I mean, the, the art of coaching teams is really about building resilience in teams. And then you sort of draw back and focus on sort of building uh, resilience in the individual. So was there an intentionality to that order? Or uh, how are you thinking about uh, building resilience in teams and then thinking about building resilience in individuals? Ah, that's a great question. Um, so when I wrote The Art of Coaching, originally coaching teams was going to be one chapter in it. Because all so many coaches, I've never met a single coach who doesn't also lead a PLC or do staff meetings or um, department yeah. meetings or something. Yeah. And as soon as I started writing that chapter, I was like, there's no way this can be one chapter. It's a whole <laughs> book. Uh, so that's where that came from. 
Um, but actually, at the same time I was working on the art of coaching, I was constantly having conversations with people about their emotions and their resilience. And it was sort of like, I actually wanted to write the resilience book before teams because I just, it just had, it was what people were asking me about left mm -hmm. and right. It was all the questions about coaching. Um, so many of them came down to how do you coach around emotions? How do you support a teacher who maybe they actually can do good lesson designs and they use a lot of different assessment strategies, but they are such a perfectionist that they're making themselves sick and they want to quit. Um, and so that was always something I knew that I wanted to, um, to work on. But I think that the connection between building resilient teams and individuals is so linked. And I think that starting with teams um, allows us to think about the conditions, the context, the ways in which leaders can set up the optimal organizations and conditions where people, where individuals can thrive. And then onward um, is really, if, if any of you or anybody listening wants an amusing, well, I think it's amusing uh, <laughs> reference. <laughs> I'm amused. Um, if you look at the very last word of the very last uh, sentence in the conclusion of the art of coaching teams, um, is um, we, we've got these books in here so we're going to do that right now i know i've got my book too and i'm i i, I remember but i want to make sure that right, i yeah. can tell you what page it's on uh yeah <laughs> anyway the very very end of it um is a a nod to the next book to onward because i just knew that it was that it was coming it was like this is what um everybody is talking about page 295 there yep. we go Oh, I should have just uh, called it out. I'm sitting here looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm flipping through my book. Um, but yeah, that's okay. Like, I knew that that book, that Onward, was already forming. And I think the thing is, the art of coaching teams is ideal for either coaches or leaders who have some positional authority and can make some decisions. But throughout my mind all the time and in conversations with people, people are like, but I am in a toxic system. What can I do? What do I right. have control or influence over? And so onward in the workbook is sort of like, all right, so you're in a toxic system or you're in a great system or you're going through a rough part or you just want to get your, you know, build up your resilience. Here is what you, the individual can do. So it's not onward. It's not really written. Um, the primary audience is not necessarily coaches. It's anybody who wants right. to work on their own resilience and who can definitely you support other in building theirs but it's like this is for you yeah when i was reading it, it it read to me as if it was a coach to a teacher you know having mm -hmm. that sort of partner to do this work and i'm and it sounds like you're confirming that sort of feel that i got from reading it um yeah. which which mm -hmm. i think I, I liked that tone for for this read yeah thank you um, maybe just a, another sort of follow up on on coaching teams. Uh, these are sort of practical, nitty gritty kind of questions. Uh, but a lot of uh, the work we do as as coaches is this sort of setting norms process. So I'm just curious about what you've learned uh, since the publication of Art of Coaching Teams about setting norms. Uh, has there been anything new that sort of you've come across in that process? Hmm. 
Um, I would say more learning has happened around what do you do when a group isn't upholding the norms, mm. um, which is sometimes the creation of them is not as hard as, all right, so what do you do a week later or two hours later when everybody is noticing that people aren't holding up the norms? And so I actually, I just did a workshop last two days and I had invited people to share some norms. And one of those was around um, being mindful of other learners and that's where I talk about sort of the appropriate use of technology and that if we're trying to create a learning space in this room and people are going to be deeply engaging and yet one of their partners in their trio is on her laptop responding to emails or preparing yeah. for a meeting tomorrow, that it really detracts from the feeling of safety in the room and from our ability to take risks and go deep into the content. So I had gone over that in the opening and the community agreements. Um, and then at lunch, someone said to me, well, what do you do if you notice that like a lot of people are starting to not hold it? And she said, like, at my table, there's three people now who are on their computers and they're obviously doing other things. And someone else keeps responding to her text messages. And she's like, you know, what do you do? And, um, and what's tricky is that as a facilitator, I had seen this start happening. And I was really debating, you know, how do I respond to this? Do I say something? Because I had told people, look, if stuff comes up or you've got work you have to prepare for, this is my standard uh, response. is like, I totally understand. And I'm going to ask you to please step out of the room and take care of that work outside and then come back in when you can be fully present. Mm -hmm. So what I said to the whole group, I shared this woman's question. And I said, when you're facilitating and you start seeing the community agreements eroding, if you don't just raise that or say something to the group, like, I see that this is going on, do we want to do something about it? The group will start to trust you less because you have said something about how um, the space will be and how you're hoping that people will show up. And then you're sort of turning a blind eye to mm -hmm. the breakdown. So what else might you turn a blind eye to? And are you really somebody who's going to keep your word? Or um, So that just came up. So I think that, you know, it's hard when you're facilitating and you have to say to a group of adults, like, hey, you guys, you know, we all basically agreed that we were going to keep our laptops and our work stuff away for this time. And now that's kind of breaking down. And I've given you an out. Like I said, it's fine if you go out of the room to take care of your business, but Right. Um, so it's uncomfortable and we don't like discomfort. We're conflict averse creatures. We don't like discomfort. Mm -hmm. I like that idea of sort of putting it back in their court. What do we want to do about it? I mean, the norms have been violated. Uh, it's not that you are sort of, uh, wagging your finger at them, but, uh, putting it back right. in their court to say, what's, what, what's, what's next for us. So, right. And it's always also, it's always important to anchor in, in the why it's not that I'm like, wanting to be an authoritarian controlling person in this space. It's so we've agreed to come together to learn and we've agreed to come together to learn so that we can do something about the inequities in our schools so that we can support teachers to be more resilient, to be, to um, sustain themselves through the tough, you know, school challenges of being a teacher. So that was our agreement in coming here. And now that's kind of falling apart. So what do we want to do about that? Right. Um, 
So maybe back to this this theme of resilience, and uh, this is something we've been kind of talking about and even having conversations with teachers about. In this division, I'm sure this exists everywhere, there is just this seeming sort of widespread feeling of, of anxiety, uh, you know, and, and, and I think uh, that might be specific partially to our context and think change that's happening here, but I think it's generalizable to kind of what's happening nationally. And I'm just curious about what you think, and if, are you recognizing that trend that there's a sort of uh, greater anxiety among teachers and pot- potentially others out there? Uh, and what do you think the contributing factors to this, uh, specifically to teachers? So, John, you, are you thinking like more like recently or? I'm thinking recent. I feel okay. like uh, in sort of my perspective, I've been in education for 15 years. It feels like this teachers. This book is needed now. This, yeah, this book is needed now the, more of, than of, ever. Right. right? And yeah. why? Mm-hmm. Why, I guess? What is, <laughs> <laughs> what is happening mm-hmm. right now that is causing so much anxiety among teachers and others? So. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's things that are exasperating what has always been the situation for teachers, and that is, I would say, global economic, political, and even environmental crisis. And the last um, two years in our country, uh, with the new administration and the lead up and what has um, come out related to the last election and the uh, just the sort of um, visibility of all these underlying tensions that have been a part of our country for hundreds of years but are just newly visible in a different way, I think are really unsettling to people in a very personal way when they're going to Thanksgiving dinner and you know, they've got their uncle or their aunt there, and it's, like, erupting. Um, And I I think it's just become this confluence of factors, including the, you know, the the decline in standard of living and the cost of living increases, and we've had the Mm -hmm. teacher strikes in different parts of the country this year, and that's coming to the forefront. I think I just heard today that the uh, standard of living has remained static, I think, for most wage earners for like the last almost decade. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 And for many people it was higher in the seventies, you know, it's like, yeah. and people are aware of that. And that's, and now to have, I mean, we hear this all the time, right? How many teachers in addition to teaching have night jobs or they're driving for Uber or they're, right. it's like, this is, we're just, you know, this is kind of increasingly worse and worse and worse. And I think um, there's just this higher level of anxiety. I think that the, all the wonderful advantages that we have, that we glean from technology also have a really challenging aspect in the sense that we can now do our work anywhere all the time. We are expected to be in communication with others like 24 seven, 365 days a year, and, you know, whether that is a teacher responding to parent emails or phone calls or text messages or a principal feeling like they need to communicate with their staff, it's sort of, get, it's, it's getting, you know, everybody's talking about how can we, how can we sustain this? I'm so busy. I'm so exhausted. Everybody's like, what's the new, you know, diet or way of eating that will help me have more energy? It's just kind of constant. And I think people are yearning for a much fuller life in which we have time for community and friends and creativity and 
spiritual or religious practices and being in nature and having fun. And it, it's like, I think we're just kind of getting to this crisis in um, how people are living. And it's an existential crisis. You know, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like that, um, that leads into where I was going to jump in and um, uh, take a look more closely at the, uh, at the new work onward. Um, so everything we just heard that, you, that we talked about leads into, I feel like kind of the linchpin of the book, which is emotion. Is that, would, would you say that's an accurate understanding? Cause I felt like when I read the emotion chapter, it kind of spread out its roots into the whole book. Um, Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that I was, um, that I, it, it was really, um, interesting to me because I'd been doing some work with restorative practices earlier this year, and I'd encountered the idea of, uh, of really isolating and naming the emotion. Um, that whole idea of an emotion being like this separate thing, right. That is sort of a, a thing that happens, but it's not necessarily defining you, um, it, I really, I really latched into that part of that chapter specifically because that is something, I mean, you know, when you, when you're coaching with a teacher, there, there's often times where the emotions just become very, uh, very sensitive and, and, and out there on, on the table. Um, Mm -hmm. but I liked that and, and that you have the, uh, appendix in the back with really kind of that table of emotions. Um, could you maybe help to guide the idea of how, like the thing I found hard when I was doing um, the restorative practice work was getting to that emotion piece. I'd been doing some reading on it and, you know, this is the emotion. It's not the, it's not the situation as much. Right? Um, mm-hmm. How can someone maybe enter into that work if they're talking with someone who is, very, uh, very fraught with an emotion and they're, they're really trying to wrestle with it, but don't know where to start. That was a very wordy question, by the way. So mm-hmm. I hope you That's were okay. able to catch it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. um, well, to start with, I think it helps for the coach to have a, a, a really clear and basic understanding of what is emotional intelligence. When you were describing, when you were talking through, that's where my mind went was to, okay, so the first component of emotional intelligence is having the awareness that you're having an emotion Mm -hmm. and then being able to name it and say, I'm feeling afraid and then being able to sort of know how to respond to it or how to engage with it. Um, And so I guess my first question would be, does the teacher know that they're having an emotion? And so what I might say is if I'm hearing someone who's talking and maybe they're, you know, they're talking really fast and they seem really agitated, really upset. Um, and I will let them, I'll let them talk as long as they need to talk. And for a coach, that means we have to be comfortable listening, just listening and managing mm-hmm. our own impatience or letting whatever happens happen. And then when they stop, one thing I might do is wait for a couple of seconds very intentionally. Mm-hmm. I might take a di- deep breath and almost model for them, perhaps unconsciously, something that they could do to help themselves in that moment. 
Um, and then I might say something like, wow, you're really going through a whole lot. I'm wondering how you would describe your feelings. What mm-hmm. words would you use to describe how you're feeling? And I intentionally talk a bit slowly. Right. And because I want to give them, again, sort of a um, a reminder of a way to unconsciously even kind of slow down if I'm perceiving them to be really agitated, right? There's this mm-hmm. uh, neurobiological concept about mirror neurons that yeah. when we're talking to someone, our, they will begin to mirror our, um, they can mirror sort of most simplistically like our emotional state. And so if I'm in a really calm space and I can provide a few cues that can help them it's not come out of their emotion. It's get to a place where they can see that they're having an emotional distress and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll help them. I'll guide them to being able to use some language. This is a, a piece of emotional intelligence to say, you know, cause they might just say, they might say something like, you know, I'm just so overwhelmed because of the demands and I'll say, so it sounds like you're feeling anxious or are you nervous? Are you angry? You know, helping them mm-hmm. find some language and using emotion words because right. overwhelmed is not really an emotion word. Right. It's more of um, what, like a status? Is that correct? Or? It is. I mean, it's, it's, we use the word to try to express an emotion, but when mm-hmm. we look at um, in the field of psychology at the words that actually express emotions and one of the resources that I use a lot, which is in Onward, is the core emotions. And it's a way of categorizing emotions into eight categories. Right. And there's debate amongst psychologists about how many core emotions there are. But those eight um, I found to be the most useful. And so that helping someone say, realize that overwhelm is actually perhaps fear, that they're not going to meet mm-hmm. expectations. Or perhaps mm-hmm. it's anger that they're being asked to do so much. And right. maybe it's both. Mm-hmm. And just helping them find some other language. And what that does is it really starts extricating us from the drama of our moment. Right. When we can look at our words on a page or we can say, oh, yeah, I guess I am feeling a lot of anger. It's the first moment in which we're sort of coming out of that overwhelming intensity of the emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really speaks to the power of words, I think, in general, because um, I know that uh, you know there's a concept called hypocognition where you don't have the the concept to wrap around something that's happening, right? And um, mm-hmm. if you have that ability to really just name it, like that that term comes from um, from an anthropologist, Bob Levy. He did a study in Tahiti where there was there was a high suicide rate, and they couldn't really articulate that they were feeling grief, right? Um, and then uh, that has been brought into, you know, other areas, like similar to what you're talking about, but that idea of turning it into an object, now you can put it somewhere. Does that seem like a, a an accurate way of describing what, what you've, you've explained to me? Like it, you, it now becomes something that you can, you can manipulate instead of just being affected by. Yeah, I think that definitely uh, speaks to what I'm describing. And then, and then once we, what happens is when we can see that, oh, this is fear or anger or grief, 
it feels like something that we can relate to and understand and perhaps then that can pass. And so I often mm -hmm. use the analogy of thinking about our emotions like weather patterns and we never huh. stay in a hurricane forever, right? Hurricanes come <laughs> and they're super intense, right. but they do leave, you know, right. and, and that people can also recognize, you know, and if you are a tree amidst all this weather, and your roots are deep and strong and your branches are flexible and you'll bend and you might lose a few leaves, but eventually you will be standing back up again in the sunlight. Yeah. Um, so that, that description actually makes me um, come to the idea. I wanted to ask you also about how you formulate the concept of resilience. It seems like from the reading that it is – and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, um, that it's like a fixed entity, but it's something that can be renewed. Does that fit with what you intended or am I missing something? Because I felt like that's where I was coming to because there were various sections where you talked about replenishing the resilience and then it was a pool. And, and so I was just wanting okay. to make sure I understood how you intended it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's what um, various kinds of researchers say about resilience is essentially we're all born with some amount. Okay. And then we can cultivate it, we can grow it, we can increase it almost like we would um, a muscle. And yeah, I think about it as we've all got this internal reservoir and sometimes our reservoirs run low and we can um, refill them in all these different ways. And so mm -hmm. Onward is built around 12 habits. Right. I'm really interested in looking at the behaviors um, that we can build and, and practice on a daily basis that will build our resilience. And so in Onward, there are 12 habits. And then the workbook has one habit per month for each of those habits. Right. Uh, that will help us build that muscle in that area to full to fill our reserves um, when they run low, or just to have extras in there for times in the future when we might need to dip in more. Mm -hmm. I wanted to clarify: Does that mean that there are different, like everybody has a different amount of resilience? So you might need to go back and try to replenish more often if, say, you're you're maybe. I don't know. Do you see where I'm going with this? Because mm -hmm, if sure. you get it, I don't yeah. keep babbling. <laughs> yeah, I think I know. What you, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting question, and one of the things that's in um, that's in onward and in the workbook are some mm -hmm. self assessments for people to do because I think some of us, for various complicated reasons, might perhaps be lower in our reserves of, com of community, for example. Maybe right. we've just moved to a new city. We don't have the connections. And so maybe we want to focus on that habit of building community. Maybe for others, um, they want to focus on the habit of, of noticing the bright spots, mm -hmm. uh, of having a sort of orientation towards optimism for whatever reasons. And some of those are actually genetic we are born with somewhat some elements of a psychological profile and a tendency towards uh, certain um, experiences emotionally or psychologically and so perhaps if 
someone knows that they have a tendency towards pessimism or towards having a, a challenge and seeing what's going well, they want to focus on that habit. So right. there's some opportunities for people to self-reflect and then think, you know, I want to focus on this habit or that one. The, the chapters in Onward are also aligned to the cycle of an educator's school year, because when I was Is thinking that about the book, Weyer, I was... Is that the Ellen diagram that you had in there? The one with the, like... Well, that's, yeah, that's specifically okay. around the, um, around the cycle of a beginning teacher's okay. uh, sort of energy in the first year where it dips really low in October, November, um, but when I was thinking about just at any stage in my teaching career, education mm -hmm. career, being on a school year calendar, um, I was thinking about, for example, how springtime May is the time when we are all celebrating and reflecting on the year and appreciating and going to graduations and having end of the year yep. um, staff retreats and how that sort of where we can mine that calendar experience to boost our resilience. Um, whereas in August, when we're going back to school in September, we're really needing to think about building community with our colleagues, with our students, with their parents. And so the chapters in Onward are aligned to what I think about as the cycles of um, an educator's school year. And okay. so what I'm hoping people will do is read one chapter a month, use the workbook activities for that chapter, and go through because it takes more than a read of a book to build your resilience. I mean, I, I on one hand, I hope people like love onward so much they can't stop reading it. But on the other hand, I also hope that they'll read it over the course of a year or go back to it over the course of a year. Mm -hmm. it's, it seems like uh, that maybe a, some low hanging fruit as far as a habit to to start building is the chapter about you know about finding the bright spots. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just talk about the power of the positivity and sort of asset-based approach to either coaching or uh, just working with others. Yeah, I really enjoyed that mm -hmm. chapter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's so interesting. People, so many people love that chapter. I love it too. Um, just, <laughs> I think we, we yearn for being able to see the bright spots or feel our strengths or our assets. Um, and we feel so much better when we're acting in those strengths. So one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately, this is actually connected to chapter one, which is about knowing yourself, um, but it's also connected to the bright spots, are I've been thinking so much about what work, of the different kinds of work I do, what work do I love doing? Like, what do I feel really, really, really good at? Mm -hmm. And it feels fun and easy and you know I just am so excited to do it and that work is usually work that is my strength and it's the work that um, I you know it's probably my best work that I have to offer and how what would it be like if we were all spending 80 90 percent of our time doing just that work that we feel really good at and that we're super skilled in. Like, I think so much of us spend so much time trying to improve in areas that we're not great at. And that, that takes so much energy. And is it, like, sometimes I just think, is it really worth it? Um, I know, for example, as a classroom teacher, when I started teaching, 
and I was doing everything and I was working insane hours. And someone said to me, you know, all that time that you're spending cutting out the geometric shapes from construction paper for your math lessons, you could ask one of your students' parents to do that. And they might love that opportunity to contribute to the classroom in that way. And I remember asking one of my students' mothers, um, who had a couple of times said, let me know if you need any help. They were second graders. Mm-hmm. And she was so happy to do it. And she was a stay-at-home mom, and she took the big pile. And the next day, I got all these Ziploc bags with all of the construction papers. And I, it was like a miracle um, <laughs> what would have taken me four hours. And it, it was just kind of a, a moment when I started thinking about what I later understand to be sort of delegating or thinking about, who has skill or capacity to do something. And that allowed me to stay focused on lesson design and assessment and so on, which she couldn't do, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, so that's connected to focusing on the bright spots, I suppose, because we have to focus on our own, what are we good at, as well as outside of us. Um, but, you know, and it's part of it is what I talk about in that chapter is our brains have a predisposition, the structure of our brains lead us leads us to have a negativity bias we notice things that aren't working we are alert to danger uh, and we have to literally retrain our brains to see the hopeful the positive the strengths the opportunities Um, and when we do start doing and that takes daily practice when we do start doing it it's sort of like it can really be a huge shift in paradigm yeah, I, I remember reading that part, and I think it, you had also stated that to take in negative feedback, it's like instantaneous practically, but then I think it was like 15 seconds or something for the positive to sink in. Mm-hmm. So right. I found that really interesting mm-hmm. to, to see that um, part of it. Did you have anything you wanted to add on? To, I'm no. sorry, I think I kind of stepped no, you're off. good, you're good. <laughs> so... Um, I wanted to take a look just briefly at um, at the storytelling part of this because I feel like that ties into what we've been talking about. I think another piece that kind of spreads throughout the book um, because we are we are narrative creatures, right? We we create our narratives about ourselves and about the world around us. Um, when when you look at um, the idea of resilience, how can you? I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time articulating this. Um, how can you build a narrative that is including a concept of resilience that's ideal to yourself as you go through this? I mean, is there a way to actively sort of build that up or would you maybe advise against starting to kind of craft a story? What, mm. what, what do you think? Mm. I like that. I think particularly what I'm wanting people to do with the workbook is literally to write a new story of themselves. The workbook is huge. I mean, I knew I wanted one activity per day for every year, but I I somehow, and I, (laughs) it just got bigger and bigger when I was writing it. And then I got (laughs) it and it's like 700 pages and it weighs a ton. Um, But it is what I envisioned and it is, full of space for people to write their new story, write themselves into a new resilient being. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that it is that process and actually the committing things to paper and the using the old fashioned pen and pencil 
to putting the words down that will help people create a new vision for themselves that is based on deep understanding. So this is not just sort of a Pollyanna, like, you know, think positive. It's actually Mm -hmm. cultivate a deep understanding of who you are, why you are who you are, all these different muscles that we're building around self-knowledge and understanding and emotions and practice. And then um, in that process, you are creating a newer, more resilient you. That reminds me of the quote in the Art of Coaching Teams that you pulled uh, about the words you speak become the house you live in. I think you could just sort of modify that. The words you write uh, become the house you live in. And I think it's just going back to that sort of bright spots idea. You know, if the thoughts that consume you or the words you say are always negative, uh, that's going to inform, you know, how you look at the world and how you act and, and, and it will modify your surroundings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we have uh, approximately 10 minutes left and I wanted to, you know, I want to make sure I honor your time. Um, you know, I really appreciate you, you joining us today. It means a lot to us to be able to talk with you because we have used so much of your work in what we do, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, for that, for this last little bit, that if there's something that you wanted to make sure that we covered, or if there's something that you wanted to add to this conversation that you had a chance to do so, um, is there something that you, that you would like to, to bring Mm -hmm. into today's, uh, conversation? Thanks for that invitation. Um, I don't think so. I'm curious if if there's any other questions or some, you know, if there's uh, any, you know, fun questions or not, or not, they don't have to be fun, but questions that you had that you were like, (laughs) like oh, should we ask this? Or is this like, yeah, like something, you know, that you, I don't know. Well, like I'm always interested in pe- whether people are coffee or tea drinkers because I'm obsessed with coffee. But <laughs> I am I am absolutely it's coffee. Just, he's a coffee drinker. <laughs> I, I was kind of wondering, and it's not about it's not about coffee or tea or dogs or cats. But That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, who who do you seek out to to coach you, or either mm. either you know in your teaching career, but maybe even more now. And as, mm, as you're working yeah. through this, who do you um, interact with and see as your coach or mentor? Mm. I appreciate that question because one of the things I try to message all the time is that we all need to be learners for the rest of our lives. And I still, mm-hmm. I am also a learner and I cannot imagine the last period of my life, the last three or four years, without the people I have supporting me, I have a coach. And I've had her for three years. And I talk with her two or three times a month. And I cannot imagine my life without her. Um, (laughs) And she's sort of a, you know, I suppose she's in the category of like life coach, I talk with her about everything. And um, she also does work in education and social justice. And so she's essential. I also have a, a business coach because there's so many things that I don't know about running a business. I, I am a public school teacher by sort of in my bones. And mm-hmm. so I'm constantly calling my business coach and saying like, you know, what do I do now? It's sort of the content <laughs> knowledge. It's like, if I started teaching high school biology, I would need someone who knew biology Uh And then I have a group of colleagues, friends who do similar work, including Zaretta in that group, um, with whom I talk to about like, 
everything from what are your tricks for traveling to, you know, how do you deal with this or make that decision or how do you both write books and do presentations? Mm -hmm. How do you make that decision? How do you say no? Um, so I have some friends and colleagues who I text and email and call all the time uh, for that, for those purposes. And I just feel like if it were not for these groups of people, as well as my dear friends, you know, who I get together with and we never talk about education. We have, you know, they, mm -hmm. um, have a break from all that. Um, and my family, I need a lot of different layers of support to, to do the kind of work that I do. Mm -hmm. So yes, I'm a big fan. <laughs> so, I almost like said, the, I think I almost said the most ridiculous thing, I was like, <laughs> but it is. I'm like, I'm a big fan of coaching. Um, we'll put that I down really believe in coaching. I know. Elena I Aguilar think I said that somewhere. I'm a big fan of coaching. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, I need my coaches. I have, you know, multiple coaches and I need coaches. We should all have coaches. Uh, yeah. Um, well, you did bring up the business coaching. I was wondering if you wanted to add anything about Bright Morning before we uh, close out, because I know that uh, uh, that you've been busy with with that as well. Uh, did you want to uh, add anything about about that? Um, maybe just people can find us at our website is brightmorningteam.com. Mm -hmm. And we offer a lot of different workshops all over the country that people can attend and go deeper into the content of any of my books, as well as of coaching for equity and leadership coaching. And we are going to be um, offering online courses starting this fall. Oh, cool. Late summer, fall. Yeah, so we're moving into that and just various ways. So if people want to learn more, they can go there, sign up for our newsletter, and then they'll be the first to know when we have new offerings. That sounds good. Are the online courses going to be something that is live, or is it going to be a mix? Do you, have you guys decided on the uh, the format for that? Yeah, they are going to be not live. Okay, okay. <laughs> that's called. <laughs> not live. Um, asynchronous. I think it's, I think we call them asynchronous. Uh, yes, so yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. Well, um, how did we do? Did we do all right today? Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you. Yeah, so much. I really appreciate it. I, 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 I can't thank you enough for, uh, for joining us today. It's, it's been uh, a really uh, meaningful experience for me. Oh, thank you. Thank These you, were Elena. great questions. I loved it. Yes, yeah. you're welcome. Thank yeah. you. Well, yeah. take care. I hope you have a good rest of your day. It's got to be what morning for you still? Are it you, is. Are it's you still out in California early. right now? I am. I'm in Oakland. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Just still before 10. So, oh, yeah. Well, you still great. got the whole day ahead of you. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, All thanks right. so much, you guys. Yeah, thanks yeah. a lot. Take thank care. You. All right. Bye. 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 Well, that's a wrap. It felt short. I mean, I know it wasn't, but uh, I don't know. Was it short? Anyway, you know what they say about time and fun. Um, I do want to thank Elena for uh, talking with us again. That was, uh, that was great. Uh, we actually recorded on the uh, second to last day of school for this uh, academic year. Um, so it was nice to go out on a high note. And to be able to do that with uh, John and Maureen, uh, that, that, was, that was perfect. So, so it was a good experience, and, and I do want to make sure that I don't forget to thank Jesse Cordova, who 
was instrumental in helping to uh, make the arrangements for this. Uh, she's the one that I initially had been in contact with. So uh, I appreciate all of your hard work, Jesse, and thank you so much. Um, if you're looking to connect with uh, the work on resilience in Onward, uh, there is a website that Elena has uh, put together uh, called onwardthebook.com, and there you can subscribe to it, and uh, it'll help you on your journey. So um, I do want to talk a little bit about the Ed Narrative. We have the next podcast set up. Uh, I've recorded it. I just haven't finished editing it. Uh, it's with Chris Shedd, who's a teacher in Albemarle County Schools at Burley Middle. Um, and we just uh, we sat down and we talked shop about uh, what it means to be uh, teaching social studies in a middle school classroom. Um, so you'll definitely want to catch that. That'll come out in uh, mid-July on the 15th. Um, it would be great to have you follow me at, uh, at the Ed Narrative on Twitter. Um, also, you can subscribe via RSS feed from the website. There's a link at the top of the blog page as well as at the top of the podcast page. So please uh, check in and, and uh, sign up for that. Um, as far as uh, wrapping up for the uh, session this time, I do want to make sure that, uh, that I double back. We, uh, during the course of the conversation with, with Elena, we had mentioned from the Art of Coaching teams that, uh, that final passage that uh, hints at the uh, next book onward, uh, but we never actually read the passage. So I'm going to close out with, uh, with the passage so that, uh, so that you can hear it if you haven't read the book. Um, so this is page 295 from The Art of Coaching Teams. Here it is. So onward, with a vision, a plan, some poetry in hand, and the company of other kindred souls. Onward. Thanks a lot, guys. Catch you later. Bye. Bye.